Hey everyone, welcome to the sixth episode of the Mad Scientist Financial Independence Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Billy and Acacia Caterly from RetireEarlyLifestyle.com. Uh, Billy and Acacia retired over 22 years ago at the age of 38 and have been traveling the world and enjoying early retirement ever since. Uh, I came across Retire Early Lifestyle through a recommendation by our Mad Scientist reader, actually. Um, a commenter named Prob8 left a message on my Shortest Path to Financial Independence article and said that I should try to get in touch with Billy and Acacia and have them on the podcast because they seem to be doing exactly what my wife and I are planning to do once we achieve financial independence. Um, after taking a look at their website and realizing that they've been you know, traveling around the world, slow traveling, living in amazing places, learning languages, and living like locals, uh, I definitely was very excited to get them on the program just to talk to them about how it's been traveling for 20 plus years and how you know a savings of half a million dollars between them has lasted for that long considering all the you know financial crisis the dot-com bust and everything else that's happened over the past two decades so uh, really excited to talk to them so Billy and Acacia thanks a lot for being here we love it thank you thank you for inviting us yeah no problem I'm really excited to chat with you so um, before we dive into what your 20 plus years of early retirement have been like. Um, could you first just tell a little bit about yourself and retireearlylifestyle.com uh, for those that may not be familiar with your story? Well, we retired in 1991 at the age of 38. None of our friends had this in mind at all. It wasn't even on the radar at all. And our families, of course, thought that we were trying to scam away or something or get something over on someone. And when I had to explain that we're paying for it ourselves, the whole idea was <clears throat> just out of the box. And we traveled um, for until 2005, I think, and we were writing letters. This was far before email was so common. And we would used phones and it was a lot more expensive. And long story short, we decided to start a website and we wrote all of our updates on the website, and then people would share those updates. And before too long, our website would crash. And so that's sort of how Retire Early Lifestyle came about. We wrote our first book in 2005 after all those years of retirement. So it wasn't like we decided to fund our retirement initially by writing books on how to do it. It sort of uh, organically evolved into that. And now we have like a... Um, an ebook store, and we answer questions to everybody who writes to us, and we have a newsletter. We answer all those sorts of questions that way. Excellent. Yeah, I actually just uh, recently, in the last month or so, picked up uh, your Adventurer's Guide to Destination Choices. Uh, it's been great reading through that. Um, and I'll obviously, obviously link to that uh, in the show notes and uh, so people can check out all the other books you have. But yeah, you, you, you mentioned that none of your friends were doing it, and that's really the thing that's so impressive to me like these days there's there's lots of great resources like like your website and others out there that you know are talking about how people have done this but i'm imagining back in 1991 that that wasn't the case no brandon you have to remember back in the 80s before we retired in 91 it was the boy with the most toys won <laughs> right and so people were just into acquiring stuff and we've never been big consumers and so it just, you know, the, the, the wow effects wear off of that stuff pretty quick. 
And so we just put two and two together and decided that wasn't that we didn't want to chase our neighbors trying to buy the latest and best news thing. Peer pressure was pretty heavy. We were living on the coast of California, and it's beautiful there, and the people are beautiful, the weather's beautiful, your home's beautiful, your car's beautiful, and you have beautiful things. And one can really get caught up in that. We sort of did. We've never been big consumers, like Billy mentioned, but that peer pressure was certainly there. Right. And I still find it so impressive that you didn't have anyone really to look up to. And even though you're probably running the numbers yourself and saying, well, this looks possible, but it's like, why doesn't anybody else do it? This seems like a much better way to live. And (laughs) there there had to have been some (laughs) self-doubt. There definitely definitely was self-doubt. And in in fact, but it got to a point where we watched a movie called Joe and the Volcano and they took this, this couple, I can't remember who the stars are. They, uh, they, at the end of the movie, they, they take a leap into the volcano, not knowing what their future is. And that's, Kind of what it was with us. Um, you know, we fi- we always figured that, look, if it doesn't work, we can always come out of it some way. But exactly. um, it, it's worked. It's worked out well for us. Um, well, and we also did hit on those um, mental paradigms where it, no one else is doing it. Why do we think we can? This is so out of the box. Our friends were not on the same page at all. We didn't share it with anyone. And I have to say, let's see, we started – we started realizing we could do this when we were about 36. And so we took two years to um, pare down our expenses and start to actually track them to see if it was financially feasible for us to do. A lot of back of the envelope uh, work was done during that period. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were trying to poke holes through it constantly, uh, you know, come up with a math and, and we'd look at the numbers, and we'd go, okay, what if, what if, what if? And we kept trying to poke holes through it and everything, but it all, all the numbers kept adding up. The numbers added up, but for, for me, and I don't know for who, whomever else, but it was the emotional challenges. Yes, but I want a home. Yes, but I love my garden. Um, yes, I want to be close to my family. Yes, but we live in one of the most beautiful towns. What about all my friends? Mm-hmm. So those things were more of the challenge for me than the numbers. Billy kept assuring me the numbers worked, and... I just trusted him because he is so good at math and he was in the finance industry. So I, I believed him, but it was the emotional challenges that were big for me. Right. Yeah. That, that's uh, quite similar with uh, my wife. Actually, we've, you know, just visualizing the future and seeing exactly what we would do helped her come around to the idea um, and realize that, yeah, we will have to give up some stuff, but uh, there's so much exciting stuff out there that's uh, to come. So, Absolutely. Once you become financially independent, it becomes a lifestyle and not a vacation. Absolutely, and that's and that's something we're looking forward to most is actually uh, you know living like locals and in a you know uh, in a local neighborhood in an apartment rather than you know only having whatever two weeks a year to go and see somewhere and you're surrounded by American and European tourists and things like that. So that, exactly. Yeah, so that's what we're very excited about. So, so Billy, you said you worked in the financial industry. Can you uh, just talk a little bit about that? Is that what that was your last job prior to early retirement? Yeah, that was my last job. Um, yeah, I was recruited by Dean Witter Reynolds at the time uh, in the West Coast to uh, become a stockbroker, and it worked out well for me um, because we'd owned a restaurant prior to this. I had a lot of business background. And so the whole uh, New York Stock Exchange lifestyle um, appealed to me. 
and uh, I, I was a, I was successful quickly. I, I worked hard, and um, I worked like nobody else would. I was working seven days a week. And you ask, how can you work seven days a week when the stock market's only open at five? Well, I worked on the weekends. I mean, I, I cold called until my fingers were bleeding. <laughs> um, that's just what I did. Acacia was running the restaurant at the time, and so our, our schedules were 180 degrees. And so I had nothing else to do anyway. So I, I compiled a large list and a large book, as we call it, in the brokerage business of clients. And after three years, um, they gave me an office of my own where I became the branch manager of the Aptos office. Oh, great. And, and so Acacia was still working in the restaurant. So this is around when you're 36, right? When you decided that maybe that this is possible. You, you both were, you were working at the Burgridge firm and Acacia was running the restaurant. Is that, is that right? That's correct. And we weren't seeing a whole lot of each other. And, and in fact, our lives started to split a bit because we had such different lifestyles and such different times that we were working um, and we were forming different groups of friends. And so at one point we just decided that we need to focus more on ourselves than on anything else. Right. So, so at 36, you decide, you know, this is possible, you're going to do it. Um, so do you start, uh, you know, attempting to sell the restaurant, I assume, and you're, you're just uh, accumulating as much savings as you can. Um, is that, is that sort of how it went? Yeah, that's pretty much it. We, uh, we successfully sold the restaurant and we successfully got paid back for it. What, one of the things that triggered this whole thing is that, is that we sold the restaurant when we were about 36 mm-hmm. and we started receiving payments from it. And when it, when it came time, it, let me back up just a second. This restaurant, we put our blood, sweat and tears in it. I mean, I, the restaurant industry is hard and a hard industry to be, to be successful in. And we were successful. We were one of the finest restaurants in Santa Cruz at that time. And we put a lot of sweat equity into this thing. And well, once we, we started receiving payments and then tax time came around, all of the money that we were receiving in payments was going to pay taxes. Right. And it was like, wait a minute, this isn't the way I planned this out. And it got to where we were paying over 50% of our income in taxes in the, between federal and the state of California. Wow. And I told Acacia that, look, I'm in partnerships with her. I'm not in partnerships with the federal government and or federal and state governments. And so it just got, it really de-incentivized myself to work in any harder because I realized that half of my day was being spent paying the government every day. Right, yeah. At that point, Billy had said, we'd be better off if you stayed home and didn't work at all. And that didn't appeal to me because I'm an ambitious sort. I'm, I like to accomplish things. And, it, you know, I was used to moving up the ladder in one form or another. And so I took another job. And when we um, when we looked at our finances and realized that basically, you know, all of the income we're making from the restaurant was going to pay for taxes, that's, that's when it hit us that we wanted to do something else. And that's when we started tracking our expenses, backing off of, you know, maid services and gardener services and things, you know, dry cleaning services, the things that we just took for granted and started seeing if we could live without all of the stuff. We went back and we tracked how much money we were spending in a year if we took out all of our, our uh, work-related expenses. Yeah, I actually just read I read one of your previous articles and where you mentioned cost of working, which is a great little phrase and... Um, it's it's amazing how how much that actually is, and when you take that out, uh, it, you really realize you don't actually live on that much if you take out the cost of working. 
Exactly. Yeah. And as long as you don't have any debt between no cost of working and no debt, you, you don't spend that much money, to be honest with you. We don't anyway. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dive into that just to see, you know, what what a typical year's expenses are um, when you're when you're living abroad. But um, before we get to that, um, what uh, investment strategies did you use? At that time, it was it was uh, pretty much the Vanguard Standard and Poor's Index 500 fund. Perfect. Um, I, that that brings up another story I remember. Um, I think hearing about. Uh, I think you mentioned when you discovered index funds, you were I think a, still a stockbroker, and then you sort of felt guilty, um, you know, bringing people into whatever product your company was selling rather than just going with the index funds. Is that is that true? That is very true. Um, I started having uh, doubts in my mind of what I was doing. And that was, you know, that was just another seed that was planted in my mind that, that I was, uh, I needed to get out of this place. It's, it's always great to hear that, though, because a lot of people I know think that, well, yeah, index funds, that's the easy way out. Uh, that's if you don't want to you don't want to make a lot of money and if you don't want to spend time doing it, but really it is the, you know, a lot, most of the studies show that it is the optimal strategy just due to the low costs and the diversification and the, you know, the tax efficiency and all of that. So it's great to hear someone who was actually in the business coming to that realization as well, even though I'm sure you had many resources at your fingertips to potentially try to, to beat the market averages. Sure, but th- that's the thing is the market averages. This is what the uh, money managers try to beat every year, and they struggle to beat it. So why not just own it? Exactly. Yep, absolutely. Um, so that's your 36, 37, so then 38 rolls around, and I assume uh, all of your numbers start looking good, and you actually take the plunge. So what what was that like? <laughs> well, we, you know, we're supposedly prepared for this, but when our, we had, we had estate sales for two or three weekends in a row and that we sold everything, the bed out from under us, our inlaid dining room furniture, our beveled glass mirrors, you know, our China cabinet, the brass and obsidian glass, pecan wood bedrooms, the whole thing. And each piece going out, you know, again, I'm the girl, you know, and I'm just going, Oh my God, this is what I work for. Isn't it? And so after the estate sales, then it was like, um, then we went to the flea market, you know, and then after that it was, everything went to Goodwill and women's uh, centers and all that sort of thing. And then after that, things went into storage. We actually had stuff later that I thought, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll use these business clothes or, you know, I can't get rid of my books. Or what about all the letters from my grandpa, you know, and my father in the Second World War, this kind of thing. So there, there was a nut still left, you know, just a kernel of things that we still didn't want to get rid of. Billy was offered a job, um, just like a transition job as a French chef down in the Caribbean islands. And that was our first destination was that I was going to meet him on these Caribbean islands. And he was going to be the chef and I was going to be doing probably the front or managing the reservations or some such at this uh, Caribbean Island resort. And so that was in January of 1991. Well, the Gulf War began and nobody was flying and everybody's telling me, do not even think about it. You know, airplanes and going to a foreign country and I'm saying, I don't have a place to live. I have no furniture. Mm-hmm. So actually the transition was a little bumpier than, than people need to go through. <laughs> 
did you end up going to the Caribbean islands then, I assume? Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, we lived on the island of Nevis for six months. Wow. Where I, my friend was the executive chef at the Four Seasons Resort, and they were, this was a, a new business venture for the Four Seasons Company, and um, they needed help. They they were down there trying to train these island people into how to, how to have five-star service and cook five-star food. And they had a you know a date certain when they were opening, but they were behind schedule. And so he contacted me once he knew I was free, and asked me if I'd give him a hand down there. And it was a great, great entry for us to get out of the states and go to the Caribbean, which we loved, and uh, just to try something completely different. Uh, but it was just a temporary, temporary situation until we got the the, uh, the four seasons up and running. Right. Had you always planned on becoming like perpetual travelers, or did that something that just you know, at the end of your time in the Caribbean, you just thought, well, hey, let's go somewhere else new. And then it just has continued like that for 20 years. Yeah, it just kind of has taken a, a life of its own. Um, you know, we went from the Caribbean. We, we caught a sailboat, sailed down south to Grenada and then flew over to Venezuela and hung out in Venezuela for a while. And then we then we came back to the States and we ended up buying a, a, a used, uh, used one-ton pickup in a... Uh, 28-foot fifth-wheel trailer, and we traveled to the western states for a number of years. And now you have a base in Arizona, is that correct? We have one base in Arizona, that's correct. And also you're down in Chapala, Mexico as well? That's where we are currently at, yes. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Acacia. Oh, I was just going to say, we have a couple of bases. Um, we like Guatemala quite a bit in Central America, so we rent a place when we're there in Panahashel, Guatemala, and we love Asia, and we generally hang out in Chiang Mai, um, where we rent as well, and then we, we can fly to the whole Pacific Rim, you know, nations in that place also. So, you know, we are perpetual travelers, but we tend to, like, have a base from which, which is familiar, from which we travel to these other locations. Yeah, that, that appeals to me so much. Uh, we, uh, you know, whenever we live abroad for a long period of time, like when we were in China for three months, we would see, you know, backpackers uh, whenever we'd visit bigger places like Hong Kong or something like that. And um, just just seeing them just makes me feel so tired. <laughs> and and like, I'm like, I don't know how you do it. But, but we felt like home was in China at that point. And then whenever we're just going out and, you know, spending a weekend or a week or something traveling somewhere in the region then it feels like we do come home, but it's just home in China. And that just makes it feel so nice. And you don't, you don't get tired. I don't think. Right. Um, Cause yeah, we would run into people and they're like, they, they're just trying to pack so much in and they're just seeing so much that they're like, like we were in Belize recently and we, we ran into people that were traveling just nonstop for over a year. And they're like, yeah, we just went and saw some more ruins and they, they, they did, they weren't impressed <laughs> right. by it at all. They're just like, just, they just had to do it. It was like a job. I know. Oh, exactly. It's like a job. I mean, it's how awful to live with the people and hang out and go to the markets. And you're not to, I mean, we don't take our backpacks to the market. You know, we don't carry all that stuff. You know, it's so much more fun. And you, you can see the early morning fishermen and, and see the, the festivals when they happen and all that kind of stuff. You get to know your, your neighbors and the restaurant owners and whoever, you know. Right. It's so much more fun. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah, actually, Chiang Mai is on probably the top of our list as far as where we're going first. Um, we, I, I, we've never been to Southeast Asia, and that's one of the places that I've 
want it to go the most. Um, and it's just great that it happens to be also one of the cheapest places to live. Um, so we think, gorgeous there. yeah. It, um, and Chiang Mai seems like it's much, uh, more our style than maybe Bangkok or somewhere else in Thailand. So it's much more manageable. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're, that's, uh, that's where we're heading first and really excited just to explore that whole area and yeah, live, uh, the Thai life for a little while. Um, so you've been traveling, well, slow traveling, uh, for the past 20 plus years. Um, now during that time, was your, were you invested still in index funds? Is that the primarily primary thing that you are invested in? Yes. And even today we still have a quite a bit in, in index funds. So you, so you survived the, the dot-com crash, the, 2008 financial crisis, all of these things. Um, what was it like to go through those periods? We, we survived Black Monday in 1987 when you were just uh, coming up. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Barely born. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, it, the, we were fine. Um, we were able to, to weather all of those crises out, um, including 2008 uh, financial meltdown. But at that time, after three in a row in a short period of time, um, I decided to get more proactive in our investment uh, approach. And so we uh, that's what I did. I put my broker's hat back on. And uh, now I'm not a day trader. And I, I, I mean, just to give you an example, so far this year, we've done one trade. Right. So we're still quite a bit, you know, buy and hold. But I'm, I'm trying to hedge ourselves in order to avoid these, these 30 or 40% downdrafts mm-hmm. um, that can just wipe out huge chunks of your portfolio. Sure. So you've, uh, you've been withdrawing around 3% a year. Is that correct? Has that been what you've been targeting uh, throughout your early retirement? We don't really target it. We just spend it. And then, and then that's the after effect effect. Um, but I, I when I went into this, I used the 4% rule mm-hmm. without knowing what, without before I think it was even invented. <laughs> um, it just, I figured out that if, if we spent this much money and then add some inflation to it, and then if I could make just a little bit more than that, then we'd be okay. And that's how this all kind of got started. And then later I learned about the 4% rule. I said, Oh yeah, well that makes sense. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, but we don't we don't budget like the four percent rule is pretty strict if you if you are a diehard about it like they you know it's just, you take your portfolio's value multiply it times four percent and then add inflation and that's what you're you're able to spend for that year well we don't do it that way we just spend and then we figure we track it every day I can tell you what percentage is spending I'm at to, up to today um, you know. We just we I've set up a spreadsheet program that that does this for us, and uh, that's available on your website, isn't it? Yeah, it's available through our books. Okay. And I think that's really important for people to do. I think whether you use our spreadsheets or create your own, um, I think it's really important because the tools are here today to do this very very easily, and you should be able to know where you're at every day financially. I, I tell people that. You know, if you're going to drive from California to New York and you're lost somewhere in Texas, how are you going to get to New York? You need to know where you're at. Mm-hmm. 
in order for you to get to go to where you want to go. Absolutely. And especially with tools like Mint out there and just to tap into everything. And even if you don't want to spend any time doing it, it can, some software can actually do it for you these days. Exactly. I, I'm just kind of uh, old fashioned in that I just develop my own uh, spreadsheets for my own particular use. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same, actually. I, you can make them do it exactly what you want them to do rather than exactly. just trying to... I, I know what information is important to me, and I know the the warning signals that I have to look for. So so I've got them built in. So you track all your spending, but I, I think I remember reading that you, you don't budget. You just uh, you track where you're at, but you don't necessarily have a budget to govern where you're going. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we don't... Um, we don't say like we're going to spend X amount on food every month or X amount on lodging. We just do it and figure it out. The other day we were looking at our spending um, here in Chapala. And I mean, we've been eating out because we haven't seen these people for a while. We've been going to um, restaurants and bars and so on and so forth. And I just finished refreshing my wardrobe in California because I can try the clothes on. They're my size and my style and so on. And we bought some digital equipment and so on and so forth. And so we, we were sort of blowing money, and I mean, which we don't really do. And anyway, so we were looking at our spending, the daily average and such, and we were just shocked at how much per year it was. It was so little. And, and we both looked at each other and said, you know, how much more can we eat? How much more fun can we have? I mean, how many more clothes do I need? You know, we just, we bought new computers, we bought new car drives, the whole thing. I mean, we... We spent some money, you know, brushed our vitamins, the whole thing, you know, and mm-hmm. and then we were still ridiculously low. Yeah, it just it, it doesn't seem like it will take a lot to give you a really exciting, interesting, fulfilling life. Um, exactly. and, 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 you know, the Internet's probably the most deflationary thing in our lifestyle. I mean, in our lifetime, um, because it has just created so much competition for sales of everything. Mm. That the competition is so fierce out there. I mean, computers are half the price of what we used to pay for, and with three times the the features. Right. Absolutely. Um. So, what what um what would you say is your average annual spending, if you don't mind me asking, just over the past I don't know five ten years? Um, less than less than thirty thousand a year. Wow. For two people. Right. People think that you have to have millions and millions of dollars to retire, and, it, and that's just some. I think the brokerage business is the one who created this myth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's, I'm sure there's many industries that have created the myth just to keep people working and spending. And Exactly. And the brokerage business, they, they only tell you when to buy. They never tell you when to sell. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do think that, um, you know, speaking of the brokerage business and the couple of million dollars in order to, to manage the lifestyle that you currently have. That's what they always say, that to maintain the level of living that you currently have. And, you know, some people do want a boat in the harbor and they do want a couple of cars and they do want a garden and a pet and, and you know, three or four bedrooms in their homes and stuff like that. And those people will probably have to have more because they have, you know, a maintenance nut they have to pay. But not everybody wants that, and, and there's so many different housing options and so many different other types of options to live your life, you know. And I mean, I know people that make thousands of dollars in income every month, 10000 this one guy I know, every month in his retirement income, and it's still not enough for him because you tend, people tend to spend what they have. If it's coming in, they spend it. Mm-hmm. 
So it's like, it's never enough is my point, unless you decide that it is. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do something a little different I haven't done before. Uh, since I've never had multiple guests on at the same time, uh, I'm just going to go through like a lightning round of quick questions about places uh, for early retirement. Because um, I know that's something I'm very interested in because like my, like I said, my wife and I hope to spend most of our time somewhere else abroad. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to go through a sure. quick list of questions and you both can answer and you don't have to agree uh, or you can't agree. But um, Are they true and false? Uh, no, they're places. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, so the, we'll start it off. Uh, the best food where in the world that you've lived with the best food. Oh man. Oh. France. Mexico, Thailand. I say France. France has got the best food in my opinion. Now, I'm prejudiced because I'm, I was trained in French cooking. Right. Yeah, that's true. So France, Mexico, and Thailand. Excellent. Uh, how about our friendliest, friendliest locals? Guatemala. Yes, Guatemala. You know, everybody's been friendly everywhere. We thought the Thai were fabulous, the Mexicans, the Guatemalans just take take the prize. Where were you in Guatemala? In Antigua and in Panajachel. Excellent. Um, which one did you prefer? Uh, Panajachel because they've got this large lake, Lake Atila, in there. And it's just a natural, beautiful. It's it's the Lake Tahoe in the south. Um, it's it's one of the top ten places in the world to see. So you've got to go there. Excellent. Yeah, it sounds perfect. Um, how about nicest weather? Chapala, Panajachel, Guatemala. Are those all high altitude places? With yeah, mile mile high, but below the Tropic of Cancer. Okay. So nice uh, spring like temperatures all year round, I guess. Yeah. You could put Antigua, Guatemala in that as well. And San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. I mean, as long as you stay up in the high elevation, uh, you know, it's not going to get too hot, not going to get too cold. Nice. Acacia, is that uh, the same for you? Yes, it is. We both tend to like dry, cool, fresh weather, a lot of sun. Excellent. How about best beaches? Ah, Vietnam, Naples, Florida, Gulf Coast of Florida, Phuket, Thailand, Phuket, Thailand, hmm. all the islands down southern Thailand. Excellent. Mexico, Mexico Pacific the, Coast has outrageous beaches. Yeah, they're different. Um, Not sugar white sand, but gorgeous. Yeah, if you want, if you want the beach like in the vacation promo, then you go to Phuket or Naples, Florida, or the Caribbean Vietnam. side of Mexico. But if you want the rough and tough uh, surfing beaches. In the Pacific Coast of Thailand are some of the best in the world. Pacific um, Coast of Mexico. Excuse me, Pacific Coast of Mexico. Excellent. Um, how about biggest culture shock? Asia. I would say Asia. For sure. As soon as you get off the plane, you realize you're not in Kansas. <laughs> it's so exotic. It's so exotic. It's so exciting. It's just amazing. Of course, you've been there, so you know. But oh, it was amazing. That was that yeah. was the thing I I liked the most. Um, yeah, it was, it was actually quite weird. We flew into Hong Kong, and then we were living in a city called Wenzhou. Um, so we spent like four days in Hong Kong before we went to Wenzhou. And I was just so excited in Hong Kong. But my wife, she, the culture shock really hit her then. And she's uh -huh. like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here for months and months. <laughs> and I, But I was fine. I was like, uh, I was just on top of the world. I was so excited to be there. And exactly. then we switched when we got to Wenzhou. I was like, oh my, oh my God, we're going to be here for three years. 
few months at least. And then finally my wife was like, oh, this is fine. This is good. So, so it worked out because we were, we were able to support each other in our, in our times of, uh, oh, what are we doing? <laughs> but, right, right, exactly. But well, that's what exactly. makes it exciting. That's what you look back on and think, oh, yeah, it's so amazing just to be somewhere so completely different. Exactly. In Asia is that. It's completely different. I tell people that it's, uh, you know, 180 degrees from the Western world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but that's what makes it exciting. Um, how about most familiar? Uh, you mean like in a different culture, the most familiar? Yeah, like uh, somewhere where you would just, you could you, you feel instantly settled. And, um, oh, Chapala. Yeah. We spent so much time here in Chapala, Mexico, that it's like, a, it's just like a home to us. We've got a lot of friends here and uh, some of these people we've known for 20 years. Oh, that's great. That must make it a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, how about easiest to get around? Um, Asia, would you say? Yeah, public transport in Asia is so good. Because you guys haven't had cars for a while now, is that correct? That's, That's correct. Right. Yeah. Oh, man, I, I hate cars so much. They're, they're just, if I never <laughs> had to not have another one again, uh, it's, I'm just so excited to get rid of the ones that we have. and not. People have no idea the expense that their car costs them. Oh, it's crazy. By far our biggest expense, even over housing. It's it's insane. Yes, yes it is. And it's a depreciating asset, and that's what hurts. Oh, I know. Yep, yep, it's terrible. Um, so uh, final one in the little lightning round. Uh, if you had to choose one place, I know that was probably hard because you have so many bases and so many places you've been, but if you had to choose just one. Mm. Oh, mm. Uh, I guess I guess I would choose some place in, in Latin America, some place either Chapala or Guatemala, just because uh, the culture is familiar. I speak the language, like I don't speak enough Thai or Chinese to to, to make my life comfortable. And it's um, international airports close to home if I need to go for a family visit for whatever reason. So I would choose Latin America. How about you, Billy? Yeah, I think Panajachel, Guatemala, would be my number one choice at this time. I mean that's that's tough because Chiang Mai Thailand is is uh, very good. It's very close second, just because the services in Chiang Mai are so good. I mean you got top rate hospitals and doctors there, as well as uh, you know tennis and swimming, Olympic swimming pools and things of this sort. So international airports, yeah, uh, transportation, cost of food and living. Yeah, what, what would you say the cost of living is like for people that may not like? I obviously know how cheap it is uh well not firsthand but just through lots of reading but uh could you just uh give a rundown of a typical day maybe in chiang mai just to show people how little you actually would need to spend to have an incredible life over there sure you could probably spend about 10 or so dollars for your hotel and that would be a nice one uh your meals probably for the for the whole day for one person and that's if you blow it out would be five dollars <laughs> um you know, so like say you want to buy something at the market for a friend and ship it home or something, that'd probably be another 5 to $10 depending, you know what I'm saying? Because the quality of items over there is, is just fabulous. You, you can live over there for about $38 a day without much hardship. And that's for the two of us. Right, that's for two people. Wow, that's incredible. And yeah, the, is the food as uh, amazing as I dream it is? Oh, yeah. I mean, plus it's inter international, so you can get everything from – from McDonald's to uh, Chicago yeah. pizza, yeah, barbecue <laughs> ribs, cornbread, but those those types of food will cost you more, right? If you do the Thai food, yeah, 
you're talking less, you know, a dollar, less than a dollar. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. I love Thai food, so I'm very excited about that. Um, what uh, what are some of the challenges associated with your lifestyle? Obviously, to me, it seems amazing and perfect, but I'm sure there's some, uh, you know, some challenges. Uh, are there any that you'd be willing to share? Probably visas are the biggest um, challenge. Oh, right. Because we're forced, unless we decide to take up residency in some country, we're forced to move on at some point. Um, but the other side of that is it, is it you know, knocks the cobwebs off of you to go see other places. Oh, that's and true. So we're still young enough to where we, we, we're not ready to just settle in one place yet. Uh, so there's a yin and a yang to that. Mm-hmm. But that definitely visas are always something that's in the back of your mind that, okay, I'm here for so many days. Right. And now i got to move on. Now, there are ways around that. Um, in Asia, you, you do what's called border runs, and, and in, as well as in Latin America, uh, you take the bus to the border, turn around, and come back and get a fresh visa. <laughs> um, or in, in Guatemala, we actually pay somebody to do it for us, so we don't even have to leave. Oh, nice. So there are services set up for this, mm-hmm. but but things changed since 9-11. Uh, companies, have, countries have gotten more automated, more computerized. And so, you know, everybody knows where you're at it all the time anymore. Right. Um, Acacia, you mentioned that you speak Spanish, I assume. Um, have you guys picked up any other languages along the way? Yes, we're functional in Thai. Um, we can order food and get a hotel and bargain at the um, markets. And we can, you know, speak very lightly social type of Thai. But between the amount of English they spend, they speak and the amount of Thai we speak, we can get along on a very uh, surface level. When they speak English, we can, we can get a little deeper. But, um, you know, I've forgotten all of my Chinese, so it's just pretty basic basic nothing <laughs> but between the spanish and a little bit of thai we know that's functional and of course english though that covers a lot of area we used to know some french but that's too long yeah I, I took french in school too but i'm sure i pick it back up you know it's dormant right <laughs> yeah that's that's another thing i'm really excited about is to i've always wanted to learn a language but without needing to learn it it's always one of those things that just keeps getting pushed back uh down the priority list but you know, one of the yeah. things that's really good um, is the World Nomads Three Language Guides. We have a link to that, too, on our site. I'd be happy to send it to you. you can oh, just perfect. World Nomads um, Language Links, and they give you all the survival phrases for free. You don't have to pay for it and get it as an app. And so basically all you have to do is get started, and sure. then you can function in that culture. I think the best thing to do is just immerse yourself into the culture. If you want to learn Spanish, come down here into Mexico or into uh, Guatemala or anywhere in Latin America and just jump in. There's language schools all over the place and they're not expensive. And uh, some of them, they let you you stay with a a family, a local family. So you're forced to speak Spanish 24 seven. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. Well, yeah, we're getting to the end of the interview here. And I I usually ask all of my guests if uh, they had, you know, one piece of advice for someone that's, you know, just thinking about starting on their pursuit of financial independence. Um, What would it be? Work hard, spend a little, save a lot, and invest wisely. Acacia? Yeah, I would say the freedom you get from financial independence is worth anything you have to do to get there. I don't care if it's giving up that extra pair of shoes or not going out to lunch. If it means 
that self-reliance, that, that freedom, if it means anything at all to you, find out how to do it. Do it. Perfect. Thank you both again so much uh, for joining me today. It's been so good to talk to you. And um, if people want to get in touch, should they just head to uh, retireearlylifestyle.com? Is uh, they can email you there? Or? Yes, they can email the guide at retireearlylifestyle.com, and we answer all of our emails. Okay, so that's the guide at retireearlylifestyle.com? That's correct. I will put a link on the show notes, uh, both to the website and to uh, the email address. And then okay. and then all your books are available on the website as well. That's, that's right. We have a digital bookstore. Excellent. Well, again, thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure, and uh, hopefully I'll see you down somewhere in Latin America here in the next couple of years. Yeah, Excellent. keep in touch, Brandon. We're always available. Excellent. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope my discussion with Billy and Acacia was as exciting for you as it was for me. Um, the fact that they were able to retire with $500,000 between them in 1991 and then go on to live such exciting and adventurous lives uh, really gives a lot of hope to people like me who are interested in incorporating long-term travel into their uh, early retirement plans. Uh, it's also great to hear that they haven't really tired of the lifestyle either and seem just as excited by the possibilities as they may have been back in the early 90s. So, uh, so yeah, it was a great interview. I really appreciate Billy and Acacia taking the time to talk with me, and uh, thank you guys out there for listening. A squared plus B squared equals finance.